Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Well, good evening and welcome to Breaking the Silence. I am Greg Williams right here in my penthouse in the 19th floor. Uh, right behind me is the Texas Medical Center where I work and I spend most of my time during the week there at Baylor College of Medicine. I just love that place. But just welcome to Houston, Texas, what I consider one of the most beautiful and awesome cities in the world. It is. I am a proud, proud citizen of this great city. We have an awesome guest tonight, and I'm really just in awe of uh, the guests that we have this evening. Uh, just almost taking my breath away when I started checking out everything and reading his book. Number one, you're going to have to have a piece of paper and a pencil because you're going to write this down because before the program's off, I want you to get on Amazon or, or however the guest thinks is the best way to get the book, uh, but to write the title of the book down so you can make sure you order because it is something that I think every family, every household ought to have a copy of this book just to learn how to deal with some things uh, that is going on in probably the majority, no doubt the majority of families in our world right now. So we'll tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later. You can actually even get involved tonight in a couple different ways. One, you can you can text me here right here on my phone, 832-396-6525. Yes, that's my personal cell phone. I just told everybody around the world, hey, what my number is, and it does go off a lot. But feel free to text that to me, or you can uh, call the BBS radio station, and TJ right there uh, will answer the phone in a kind and gentle way and patch you right on through to where you can talk to me and the guest tonight with your comment or question, and that number is 888-627-6008, won't cost you a penny, toll free, or you can get on, I'm looking at it, and we are live on Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page. Yep, there we are. And my son, Curtis, is running that from uh, the United States Army uh, base up in Seattle, Washington. He takes care of all that for me. And I just love my youngest son to death. So I appreciate him doing that. We can get right on Shattered by the Darkness. Comment through there. And it's on all kinds of other platforms tonight. But most importantly, we are live on BBS radio around the world. And I don't think it gets any better than the staff at BBS Radio. You know, I'll tell you what, been one of those weeks. It's been one of those weeks that you think that everything's going to go exactly the way you want. Um, just ask the Houston Astros if that happens sometimes. Sometimes it does, 
And this week, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I tell you what, just when you think you have it all locked up, something else will happen. Just when you think you're whistling Dixie and zippity doo da day, something happens in life. And there's periodical things in times of the year when, for no apparent reason, things end up not going as planned. And we're going to be talking about this uh, this evening with our guest. Sometimes uh, divorce happens in families. Sometimes you personally go through a divorce. Sometimes your mom and dad will separate and go through a divorce. Sometimes relationships come and go and they break up. And during these times, uh, the easiest thing to do is to just accept your fate and realize that there possibly could be no hope. But I want to kind of dig a little deeper with you tonight. Uh, instead of giving up hope, I want to encourage you to keep your faith and keep that hope alive no matter what. That's what this program is all about, is to never, never, never not believe that one more day will give you one more dosage of hope in your life. Let your hopes, not your hurts, shape your future. And I think that's such a key in life because there's so many times that we'll get blindsided. And I was just telling people, uh, I was at um, South uh, Padre Island uh, for the last couple of days. And, and uh, well, love, I hope there's some uh, physicians and clinicians uh, that are here listening to the program tonight for the first time. If they are, welcome, and thank you for taking good care of me at South Padre Island, uh, Texas, this weekend. And um, there may be days that I was telling them that you just think everything's just going great, but then all of a sudden you just get blindsided by life. And how do you handle that? Uh, remember that this is just the beginning, not the end. There's always, always hope. Never forget that all these hard times, for instance, we're looking out my uh, home's window right now. If it starts raining, I want to let you know eventually, and I promise you, eventually, that storm is going to end and it's going to move on. Same way with things in your life. Same thing when your personal life starts having storms. If you're either in the storm, coming out of a storm, or you're fixing to go into a storm, you're either having problems just got done with the problem, or congratulations, tomorrow morning you're going to walk right smack dab face head on with the problem. But I want to let you know that eventually that will end. Sometimes we're tested uh, not to show our weaknesses, but to discover something that's inside of us that can be a strength to encourage us, to give us a little bit of hope. That, yeah, life may be a little different, but that doesn't mean it's over. And it may be different sometimes in a in a better way eventually if you'll just hey, hang on. Uh, there's life lessons to be learned in every challenge in your life. So instead of sometimes us just bowing our head and go, oh, no, why me again? Why does it always happen to me? Instead of going to those pity party modes, Maybe we need to sit back and go, hey, what do I need to learn from this? What can I discover through this about me? 
How can I strengthen one more character trait to make me ultimately a better father, a better person, a better man, a better supervisor at work, a better friend? What can I learn from what I'm going through to be able to help me polish up uh, who I am? Keep pushing forward. I believe it was um, Henry Ford that said, when everything seems to be going against you, remember that the airplane takes off against the wind, not with it. It's that force of, against it that lifts you to a higher plane and a higher place that only you can fly and you are destined to make there. So keep a positive mindset. And a couple things to remember, then I'll stop it and we'll get our guest on tonight because I can't wait to talk to him. Remember, you will get through this. Broken crayons, and I love this quote, broken crayons still have the ability to color. They don't have to be thrown away. They still have that coloring uh, power in them. Just because we're broken at any given time, we still have the power to become what we are designed and who we are designed to be. And remember to hold your head up. You'll never find a rainbow looking down at the ground. And some of the best growth happens as a result of things that go wrong in our life. And like we always end up every show that we do, never, never give up on hope. There's always hope. Just a few things I learned this week uh, when things don't happen right. And I hope you uh, can maybe apply those to your life tonight or this week or maybe to a friend that's going to be going through an issue in their life. Tonight, it is an honor for me to welcome to our program Anthony Moore, and he has served uh, for 26 years and still serving uh, as a judge of the Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles. And he also sat as a judge pro tem on the California Court of Appeal. And uh, he has all kinds of, I'm reading his uh, little resume and CV here. He is uh, a fellow has become a fellow of the Advanced Leadership Initiative at Harvard University and is now the senior editor of the Harvard ALI Social Impact Review. And his stories have been uh, nominated for several awards. He has worked on the staffs of the Evening uh, State Review, Street Review, Fifth Wednesday Journal, Hippocampus Magazine and Under the Sun. And most importantly, you will not want to miss reading this book. He has written a book that came out this year around uh, Valentine's Day called Every Other Weekend, Coming of Age with Two Different Dads. And I was just telling him right before the program, I just saw his dad on an I Love Lucy episode just an hour or two ago. And I said, oh, man, his son on the program tonight. So it is an honor to welcome to the program author, judge, Mr. Anthony Moore. Anthony, can you hear me? Tony. I hear you just fine, Greg. Hey, and Tony, thank you, for, awesome. thank you for having me on your show. I'm delighted. It is an to honor. You. Where are you sitting right now, uh, Anthony? Uh, right now where, I'm home in California, the L.A. In California. Fantastic. So you're in L.A. and your wife is there keeping an eye on you? She's camera shy, but she's off to the side here. 
uh, having dog watching is at your feet. playing with our little rescue dog. <laughs> His name great, is great. So you are on the uh, judicial court, the su- superior court, Supreme Court, correct? Superior court. I said part-time. I, I retired two years ago to go to the Harvard ALI uh, fellowship. But uh, now I'm sort of sitting part-time uh, in various assignments, actually in various counties. But when we leave the, when we retire, we can come back on assignment and sit anywhere in the state uh, doing various assignments that we might be qualified to handle. So you have probably heard every type and every kind of case that's even possible to be heard. Uh, uh, yes, the- no. yes and no. My background was civil. So I basically had a civil assignment handling complex cases and uh, various disputes. Uh, and then I did do some criminal matters handling felonies and misdemeanors. Um, right now, I'm actually next week going to be sitting in the mental health division because I'm oh. interested in mental health and it's an important subject. So I kind of boned up on that and I'll be handling some of those matters next week. But, Greg, the one assignment I've never had and never want to have is family law. And the reason for that would be why? Oh, probably, you know, experiencing it as a child, you know, divorce as a, a child. Uh, I don't find the law that interesting. Um, I'm just there are other areas that I just enjoy more and feel that I can do a better job uh, than family law. Yeah. Now, when you're dealing with mental health that you're getting ready to take an assignment on and understand, do you feel that after all the things that you've seen over your many years of experience and your wisdom is probably second to none for people that we've had on our program? Maybe. What's going on with mental health? in our country right now, besides the world, that you see could be one of the things that we just flat haven't got a good grasp of? It's serious. Um, And it's not new. Greg, I remember when I was going into my sophomore year of college, there was a book called Studies in American Society. And there were four uh, basic chapters. And one of them was called Mental Health in in the Metropolis. And the conclusion was one fourth of city dwellers had mental problems. Now, that's one study, one conclusion by, uh, you know, one author, but it's a, it's a sign. It's a, and, and, you know, serious, and we seriously have a problem now too. It's not going away and we need more resources to help people out. Do you think with what's going on in the world that uh, that number is a lot higher than one fourth? I wish I knew. Yeah. I don't know whether we're dealing with the same number uh, creating more of a stir or whether the number has gone up. I, I, I just, I'm not one to be able to guess. So when you look at your life and an awesome life that you've had, you and your wife and your, a wonderful career and your esteemed, uh, well-known uh, judge, what did you think when you were sitting in your recliner going, I think I want to write a book about, <laughs> divorce and well, the difference of fathers. Yeah, I, I didn't, it didn't just come to me out of the blue. Um, my parents had uh, two very good friends, husband and wife, who were literary agents. Uh, they ran what, uh, the Reese Halsey Agency. And I knew Reese and Doris very well. And somewhere after I became an attorney, they uh, said to me, you ought to write a book about your experience, you know, and the two different, very different fathers you've had. And I said, oh, no, I'm too busy practicing law and my story's not interesting. Then I became a judge. And Doris, uh, at that, widowed at that point, 
uh, called me and said, you have to write a book. This is a great story. And again, I said, Doris, I've just had a normal life. You know, I, I haven't had the incredible experiences that say uh, um, Mary Carr had when she wrote uh, The Liar's Club or Jeanette Wall had when she wrote uh, The Glass Castle. I mean, they really had extreme experiences, which I didn't have. And I said, it's not interesting. Well, then, but I've always liked to write. And I went to a couple of writing conferences and a couple of the people there said the same thing. You ought to write a story about this. And I had written a couple of personal essays, which were brief. A couple of them made it into literary magazines. And then I sat down and said, wait a minute, enough people are telling me this, that maybe there is something to be said. And I began to write. And initially it was a series of short essays, but then I decided to collect them, uh, you know, curate them, polish them, and out came every other weekend. Well, I tell you, your your father, your natural father, uh, was not only an actor on a lot of television shows, westerns, Perry Masons, and as I was going through his uh, uh, filmography, it was like, wow, I I I know exactly who we're talking about. He was very well known, um, but then he also was an advocate for the Democratic Party yep. and was in. The hotel, the night that Robert Kennedy uh, was assassinated? He was there, and I was actually getting in the car to drive down to uh, be with him. I had stopped by the house of a good friend of mine from high school, and Gary and I were literally going to get in the car. The TV was on in Gary's living room, and I turned, and there was a crawl on the screen that said Kennedy shot. So obviously we didn't go to the ambassador. My, my dad was there. I ended up going over to his place at four in the morning when he finally came home. And of course he was crestfallen. He was just absolutely, you know, in misery because of what happened. So when we look at that story and I'm going to let you, I'm just going to hush up here in a minute, let you tell uh, what the book's all about with that democratic power pillar that he was involved with and then the divorce and then your stepfather was a staunch Republican. Uh, the, <laughs> what did that do uh, to who you were? Well, it made me kind of, you know, oscillate back and forth. Ultimately, um, I think thanks to Lyndon Johnson, whom I never really cared for, uh, I registered Republican. And until the recent history, I was a Republican. Now I'm, you know, independent, really. But um, uh, I, 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 you know, it was definitely a dilemma between the two. They were polar opposites, both very active. My dad did stump for Bobby Kennedy. It's that's not in the book. I ended the memoir at the end of high school, which was 1965. Right. Uh, but I did write about my dad in the Nixon campaign, and that became an article, an essay, uh, which is in the North Dakota Quarterly. If anybody ever wanted to read it, it's there. But uh, he was very committed to the Democratic Party. I remember being uh, told to, uh, that Adlai Stevenson was a wonderful man. Uh, and I heard about him before I heard about Eisenhower, uh, because I remember my dad talking about how Stevenson's wonderful. And I told that to a friend of mine who was a neighbor down the street. And she looked at me and said, no, you want Ike. <laughs> he came from a Republican family. And I didn't know who Ike was. So I went home and I asked my parents and they told me. And I was probably, what, five years old in 1952. When um, when you decided to start jotting down this story, what was the hope of the impact 
that this book was going to make on those people that uh, picked it up and started digesting this and reading it? What was your hope? Your That's dream? A good that question. I mean, I didn't start it with the goal of saying I want people to think A or B. Right. I started it with the idea of just collecting the essays I had written and making a story out of them really for the family to read. And many people write a book just for the family. And that was my initial thought. But because I put a lot of uh, background into it for uh, West Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, the San Fernando Valley, I kept thinking, okay, my audience is going to be high school classmates and maybe a few classmates out of grade school. Uh, and I thought that those are the people I'm writing to. I want to kind of you know, engage them with the stories and the memories that we all share. Uh, and then later people said, well, you're really telling a story that other people around the country or even around the world might want to, uh, you know, might want to relate to. And this, the book could resonate with them. I'm not saying it will or won't. I hope it does. But yes. uh, it, it sort of grew uh, from, as I said, just a little family story into something which I hope has more universal appeal. Every other weekend. Is that, I mean, that's the title of the book. Is that what you lived through the divorce? Yes. Um, my folks divorced. And then uh, starting at that point, I would see my father uh, on Saturdays uh, or maybe on a Sunday. Uh, within two years, both parents remarried and they ended up living very close to each other. Uh, and my father initially lived in Hollywood, which isn't that far away from Beverly Hills where I lived. But then they moved to Beverly Hills because of the school so that uh, my dad's stepchildren, his second wife's uh, two boys, could go to the Beverly Hills schools, which at the time were among the very best in the country. And so uh, I literally at one point could walk from one household to the other. And starting, I'd say, in the sixth grade when we came back from New York, because we lived there for a year, my mom and, my, and me, um, starting somewhere in the sixth grade or fifth grade, actually, um, I was shuttling back and forth one weekend with my mother and stepdad, one weekend with uh, my father and stepmother starting. Actually, I should say I was wrong. The sixth grade, not the fifth grade, January, 1959 onward until I graduated high school. And Tony, how does that affect you as a child growing up? Um, because back in those days, it may not have been as prevalent. Uh, it may have been in California, uh, more than what it is where I grew up in the middle, in middle, uh, Midwestern part of the, the country. But what does that do to your, your perception of being a child and having a, a, a good childhood, having to go between different households? Well, I was lucky because I really made school the center of my world, if you will. Uh, because even though you know the, the, the parents were doing their very best, and you know my stepfather tried very hard to be as best a parent as he could, and I think my father's second wife tried. Uh, you know that relationship was strained with me because she had taken you know him away from my mother. So there was a side of me that was not very forgiving. Right. But um, you know, and, and the other point is I didn't really talk about it with my friends. It was never, if I can remember this right, I may be wrong, but as far as I can remember, this was not a conversation topic among my high school friends because none of them came from broken homes. Now, later, I'm still very much in touch with many in my class, and a number of people have now told me that either 
they came from a broken home or they knew people in our class who did. And those people never talked about it either. So this was just sort of the, you know, the silent elephant in the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, how do you think it affects children when they are being put between two divorced parents uh to try to live somewhat of normalcy of lives. What what kind of information and what kind of uh, wisdom do you have to be able to share with them? I think, you know, you're, it's not normal. You know, you can't think that you're living a normal life because you are not. Um, you are literally two different personalities with two different families. And, you know, you're going to learn to get along with each one. And by doing that, you're going to learn what to say, what not to say, what attitudes to adopt here versus what you would adopt there. Um, I never really had to make a decision, nor was I ever asked to make a decision between families, like which one do you want? I was very fortunate about that. Um, my stepdad, Stan, wanted to adopt me, um, which you know made me happy. But I said, no. He said, look, I've still got a father. You know, I would yeah. feel very disloyal if I let my uh, stepfather adopt me. Said he, I love him. We're we're getting along, you know, more or less, if we will. More, we were getting along pretty well, actually, as the years went on. But I wasn't ready to say, okay, I'm now a Dashu, not a Moore. Um, But you're. There were times, especially in grades six, seven, and eight, there were times I might be over with my father, thinking, I really am happier with my mother and Stan. You know, this is not a great place. You know, he's fighting with his uh, new wife and it's just not great. Then the next weekend I'm with my mother and Stan. Stan was a bit of a taskmaster. And I'm thinking, I really like my father and my better. I wish I would live there more often. You know, this isn't good. Stan wants his kids to work. And by the way, he wanted them in the family business. When I heard you in your intro talking about your son in Seattle and another member of the family helping you out here, I'm thinking, wow, this is a family business that, that succeeded and, you know, everybody connected and I hope is enjoying what they're doing. Uh, in our family, Stan desperately wanted uh, his son, his daughter and me to be involved with the family business. None of us would have it. We wouldn't have any part of it. And although what's interesting is my stepsister, Leslie, specializes in advising family businesses. That is her profession. She's very well known. She's connected with the Aspen family uh, organization and she's written about it uh and she's a real authority on the subject so what was the uh the business that your stepfather stanley was involved in that he wanted to get everybody he was, a he was a serial entrepreneur um he started a company called dashy business machines and that was really the one for which he's best known i mean if my dad was best known for philip marlowe stan was best known for dashy business machines um they uh, they made machines that embossed and imprinted credit cards, which, of course, were coming online in the late 50s. Um, he was very friendly with the vice president of Bank of America, Joe Williams. And, the, uh, and Joe asked Stan to make the machines that would emboss and imprint the Bank of America, which is now Visa. So that was the huge breakthrough, if you will. And by the way, uh, Joe's two children, Diane and Chip, are still good friends of mine. We still hang out together. So, but that was Stan's big triumph. He sold that, believe it or not, to the Howard Hughes organization. 
Uh, he then went into another company with other people called International Marine Oil and Development Company and Modgo. That did very well. It was sold to Amtel, which was a publicly held company. Then he tried to start a train in a tube called the Dash of Air, kind of a bulk handling transportation system. It was, uh, you know, mezzo mezzo. It, it was sold. The Bendix Corporation bought it. Uh, he got his investment bank back, and that was about it. He started another company called Omnithruster, which didn't do well. Then another company called Biomixer, which did even worse. And finally, when he was about 93, 94 years old, he started a company that makes walkers, and he called it the Dashaway. Uh, but that didn't work out either. But he always wanted to be in business and be the big entrepreneur. He was always looking for the next big thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take our, our only break tonight. Uh, but on the other side of this uh, commercial, I'd like to talk to you and maybe drill down a little bit about the difference of being in a home uh, that was built on the entertainment business and being in a home that's built on the business. And right. how did that conflict? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And then I want to talk about uh, some of the things that you dealt with going through this and, and what caused you to write that in the book. We'll be right back. You can call us at 888-627-6008. And we'll be right back. You won't want to miss this last segment of Breaking the Silence. Hang right with us. We'll be right back. From HCI Publishing, that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. I just checked my phone. We're getting some text through my phone. Uh, one of them asked, what was it like uh, to grow up in a home in Beverly Hills, Hollywood area, where your father was obviously a unbelievably handsome man? And in that entertainment world, what, what kind of lifestyle, what kind of, take me back uh, to what that felt like uh, when you were a child, did you get to go on set? Did you get to meet a lot of famous people? Did you get to go to the parties? What What was that like in those days when things were going well with your dad? Okay, well, first of all, when things were going well with my dad, I was a kid, um, yeah. you know, from, uh, up to the age of nine. That's when the uh, the divorce occurred. So I wasn't going to that many parties, if you will, although we did have a lot of guests in the house, and I actually have a chapter about that in the book. Right. Um, also, my you have to chapters too. Yeah, you also have to understand 
my dad was well known, but he was not an A-list star. Uh, he was on the radio, but it took a while to adopt to uh, television and to movies. He didn't do that many movies. He was more the featured uh, appearance on the Western or something like that. Um, he only had one TV series. It was a mistake. He made it was the wrong decision to make. And again, I write about that. Um, but he turned down the lead in Wyatt Earp to do to take this series in Europe because he wanted to be the international man of mystery. So what was it like? Um well, first of all, you know, as a young kid, you, it's, it's hard to separate uh, fantasy from fact. Uh, and my dad was a villain and I used I saw him getting killed on the screen. So that hurt and was a problem, uh, although nobody teased me about it. But it wasn't nice to see my dad killed on the screen and have a theater full of people cheering when I was five years old. Uh, but what was fun is when all of his friends came over to the house and they were all very uh, loquacious, uh, they were precocious, they were uh, enthusiastic, they would jump around and, you know, and run lines and tell jokes, including my dad. He was the best joke teller you would ever want. Even James Garner said that in his memoir, uh, The Garner Files. And, you know, as a little child, I could sit in my bed upstairs or go to the head of the stairs and hear all of this uh, badinage, if you will, and talk and gossip. And uh, that, to me, was what adult life was all about. Later, later, uh, when you know, after the divorce and the remarriage, there were times I was with my dad and did meet some personalities. Um, and it was always fun. But I must tell you, in terms of what it was like in school at Beverly Hills High School, like any other place, people, you know, you, and we had many, many uh, children of stars, much bigger stars than my dad. I mean, Danny Kaye's daughter was a year ahead of me. Lee J. Cobb's daughter was in my class. Joey Bishop's kid was in my class. You know, I could keep going. And they were treated like normal kids. Uh, nobody would ooh and ah about them. In fact, a lot of us didn't know who they were. There were I remember uh, Melinda Marks, and I had no idea she was Groucho's daughter. Just no idea whatsoever. Um, you know, it, it, they're, they're normal people, and the stars were normal people, Uh Sometimes you would go over to their house. You didn't see them. They weren't there. Uh, sometimes you would see them like Debbie Reynolds walking her dog or something like that. Um, I remember one time uh, in a, with a couple of friends driving down uh, near the Beverly Hills City Hall and a car pulled up and it was Richard uh, uh, Richard Chamberlain who played on Dr. Kildare. It was a series. Yes. And I didn't recognize him. The driver of the car did. And Rich, the guy who was driving leans out the door and yells, we watch Ben Kasich. <laughs> and then he peeled out. <laughs> I mean, this is what it was like, but you know, it, it, it wasn't that glamorous to us. And there was a dark side about it. A, a lot of people were drunk. A lot of people abused substances. There was one, I'm not going to tell you the name, but there was one uh, lady a couple of years ahead of me in school. Her father was exceptionally well-known. I mean, the name is a household name. And he was always getting into screaming matches with the family. And you could hear them a mansion away. You really could. And um, she came out fine, but, you know, it was, it was, it was a rough life. Yeah. Uh, there was another person, an Academy Award winner, who um, literally uh, his, his wife kept uh, liquor in the lampshades because people, you know, he didn't want her to drink so much. So she would hide liquor in the lampshades. And what was really sad, and, 
but he had won an Oscar. Uh, and what was really sad is both parents committed suicide while this uh, their daughter was in high school. So you had the good, but you had a real dark side in Beverly Hills, too. It was not paradise at all. Yeah. So when when he was going through this uh, family situation with the divorce, uh, fifth, sixth grade in, in that area, what caused you to start leaning towards uh, law, uh, being part of that uh, institution? And uh, what, what kind of pushed you that direction? What interested you? And why did you get involved in that? Well, I always wrote. You know, I would write little stories along the way. And um, I like public speaking. And when I got to high school, I joined the debating society. And so people started to say, hey, you like to write, you like to speak, you do both reasonably well, you should be a lawyer. You know, I thought, well, what do lawyers do? I don't know, you know, even though, and we had two uh, two kids whose parents were judges on the local municipal court. Uh, and you know, they both said, gee, you ought to be a lawyer. And I didn't really think about it, but then I wasn't sure what else to do. And so once I got to college, uh, it seemed to be the natural move, either that or journalism school, because I was very active on the school paper in high school, and I was active on my college paper. And uh, so I got applications for both law school and journalism school, filled out the law applications first because they were easy. And I sent them out first. Then I went to the J school applications, which wanted God knows how many essays. And so I sat there and started fighting my way, fighting my way through essays. And suddenly the law school started accepting me. So I figured, okay, I'll go to law school. The rest <laughs> is history. There you go. Yeah. So um, with wisdom that you've had in your own life experience, and you've written this book, and people are just going to buy that and read this, what kind of wisdom do you have uh, for families that are going through divorce that would make it easier or a, a better way of handling it than what possibly you dealt with it in your life or was the way it was handled in yours. But what are you hoping that people can learn from this, even though it is your life story, but I'm sure you're wanting to say, Hey, wait, parents, there may be a better way of handling this. Well, you know, parents should never um, speak evil of the former spouse. Fortunately, my parents did not. My mother was very careful about that. Although later on, once I got into you know senior in high school and into college, she started sharing stories about my dad, uh, which were not necessarily complimentary. Um, and my father was the same. He really never said anything uh, derogatory about my mother. Although again, you know, as we talked and as I got older, he began to share stories about her. Uh, but I would just say, don't speak evil of you know, the other person. Um, and if there is a second marriage, uh, you know, treat the child equally. You know, don't, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got a stepchild along with your natural kids, uh, don't play favorites. And Stan really was wonderful about that. He did not play favorites. The three of us were absolutely equal in everybody's eyes, and including our eyes, which was wonderful. Um, my father's second wife, not so much. Um, uh, there was a little bit of jealousy there. Um, and the little bit of jealousy I found when, you know, when was that he and his, you know, stepchildren had more exposure to Hollywood and the sets and the, 
you know, the, the whole entertainment industry than I did once he and my married. Now that's a, because I didn't live there. I was only there on weekends. So his, uh, the two, uh, the two sons had much more exposure. So I can't really fault there, but I felt a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit left out, if you will, especially like in ninth and 10th grade. But did, for did your example, father's career, acting career, pick up more after the divorce and that the stepchildren were there during the week more than what during the the good days of his career? Well, or was the, it always about the same? Greg, the good days of his career were when my mom and dad were married. Okay. Once the divorce occurred and he remarried, his career started to slip. And he tried very hard to keep it together. He got roles, but he didn't get a TV series. He actually, you know, he, he wrote and they shot at least two or three pilots. I still have them. Uh, I can think of three immediately. They never made it uh, onto the networks. Um, he just wasn't, you know, as successful after in the second during the second marriage as he was during the first. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of which is probably what Hollywood wanted. Uh, they didn't necessarily want his type. Uh, but second, um, he had a temper. And uh, my mother finally told me that there were a couple of producers who said he's right for the part, but life's too short. Yeah, because it looks like from the outside looking in um, that he had all the, I mean, when he was on the the, the same set with uh, Desi Arnaz on uh, I Love Lucy, he's better looking than Desi Arnaz. And he had that voice that was just so uh, powerful. It's like, wow. I mean, it was second to none. So I just wondered what maybe, so the, so the temper you think could have kept him from, that's one thing. Also, when he went to Europe, um, this he took over this third season of a TV series, which wasn't doing that well. That was a career mistake, but he always wanted to live in Europe and play the international man of mystery. And that was the role he had, you know, in foreign intrigue. He ran a hotel, the Frontier Hotel, uh, all sorts of people, spies from behind the Iron Curtain, our our spooks, everybody got together and met at this hotel. And th the whole story was about Cold War intrigue, crisscrossing through the Frontier Hotel. Well, that was great, but he you know, people forgot about him back here in Hollywood. And after a year when he returned, people were saying, well, who are you? You know, well, you know, what have you been doing all this time? The third season didn't do well and it went off the air. And so to suddenly pick up where you left off, that can be very difficult. And he really was uh, playing catch up after that all the way through. He had some good movies. He had some good TV shows, as you mentioned. Um, he had a couple of campy uh, cult movies like The Angry Red Planet, which I think is a very cool sci-fi flick. Um, maybe if he had lived, he might have done better because he had a great role on Funny Girl. And he played the club owner uh, that gives uh, Omar Sharif a job at Barbara Streisand's request. And that was, he did well there. He uh, was well-received, but, you know, shortly after that, he died. Yeah. Was he in Casablanca? No. He was no. not. He was, um, he was in the radio uh, show of the treasure of the Sierra Madre. 
And he did play opposite Humphrey Bogart. And now I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember which one it was, but it was not Casablanca. It was it was a much lesser known movie. And of I'm course, the minute think, we go off the air, I'm going to remember it. Yeah, I wrote that down someplace, but I, I don't see where that was at. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember him playing um, with Humphrey Bogart. But. Yeah. Do you have a copy of the book there in front that you can hold it up? I want everybody to see this. Absolutely. And there it is. this down. Every other weekend coming of age with two different dads. Was that your uh, initial title? Is that no. the one that you selected? No. Um, my publisher and I went through a lot of titles. Do you my like working, publishers? My working title, believe it or not, was <laughs> Father, Father. And I never really liked it very much. And a couple of my friends said, oh, is this about a religious, uh, a religion or a religious story? Oh. And I figured, okay, this isn't going to work. So the publisher and I just went around and around, you know, and then we had like, you know, father versus father, father and father, you know, every spinoff and you know adaptation of father and father we could think of. And finally, every other weekend. And then at that point, because there are novels by that name, uh, we added the subtitle coming of age with two different dads. And, and you know, that the, the subtitle told me exactly what the book was about which I like that because, you know, every other weekend is a great catch and a hook. It gets you to pick up the book. It's like, what's this about? And then you knew exactly. Uh, it made it clear that this is going to be about uh, two different fathers raising uh, children on those every other weekends. Yeah. What did you like about writing uh, this part of your life down on paper to share with the world? And then what did you dislike about that uh, process? Sure. Um, well, certain chapters just flowed out onto the screen. You know, I would say in an earlier years, the page, but of course it flowed out onto the screen and they were easy to write. And I had fun writing them. For example, there's uh, one about radio, uh, you know, after the remarriage. And I, I wrote about that, and that was easy. There were sections about my uh, older stepbrother, Skip, and his hot rod. Those were fun to put together. Um, so those were easy. They were fun. A couple of the high school uh, chapters were fun to do. Um, one of the uh, sixth grade chapters was an easy one to write. But then there were chapters that were very hard. The, the divorce chapters were exceptionally hard to put together. Uh, there's a chapter where I had a real Donnybrook with Stan. I mean, it got physical. And I thought initially I was going to keep it out of the book. And then I figured, no, you know, if you're writing a memoir, you got to really kind of tell on yourself and you have to put in the good and the bad. And Stan could be physical. Uh, I won't call him a child abuser. He never, you know, was that bad, but he, you know, he would hit. And I saw him hit uh, his own son one time and not be, not be that apologetic about it, even though he realized it was a mistake. Uh, he hit Skip for something I did, not Skip, and I admitted it, and Stan just sort of shrugged and walked away. Um, and then there was a time when he got very angry at me for something I really didn't think was appropriate, and that's in the book. It's called The chapter is called A Bowl of Jello, and that was an extremely hard chapter to write. Uh, you know, I mean, my eyes would fill every time I would go back to it, and I wrote it several times. Um, so, yeah, there were places that it was a real chore to put together but other places it was easy or at least fun yeah did you learn anything about 
who you are and why you are who you are by going back um, and writing things down on paper. Because once you start putting blood on the page, it wakes up something inside of you. Lisa did for me, did it for you? Like, wait, I don't recall that. But now that I recall it, that wasn't such a pleasant time of my life. Or this was, you know, what, what kind of experiences did you have with that? Well, the first thing it did, of course, was trigger memories that I had forgotten about completely. I would start to write something, wait a minute, you know, now I remember this and that. Uh, And I use memory triggers. Sometimes I would play an old song because a song could wake up a memory or uh, a particular food could wake up a memory or a smell or something like that. So I would use all of those assists, if you will. But um, it, uh, it, it, how did it make me who I am? I kind of realized, and somebody told me this during, we were at a bookstore. I was doing uh, an appearance at a bookstore and I had an interlocutor who said, you know, if it wasn't for uh, your father, you never would have written this book. If it wasn't for your stepfather, you never would have become a judge. And I think that's true. Explain that a little bit. Well, my dad had creativity. He actually was a very good writer. Uh, my mother urged him to write as well as act, but he didn't have, he, he was, I'll, I'll say it, he was too lazy to do it. Uh, he slept till noon if he wasn't working on the set. And he could have sat there and, you know, written a story, written a script. Uh, when he wrote treatments, they were wonderful. Uh, one time I asked him to help me write a little play, if you will, in the eighth grade. And it was a takeoff on the opera Aida. And I wasn't sure what to do with the king. And uh, he said, have the king skating around the stage. He just said it like that. You know, he had a wonderful imagination and he really could have done very well, you know, on the page. Um, he didn't do it. Stan, on the other hand, was strictly business and very interested into law. His father had been a lawyer and he always, you know, was very, ur- he urged me to be a lawyer and practice law and, of course, represent, quote, the family business. And, uh, he did have a lot of advice regarding business and finance, some of which, most much of which I took to heart. And I think becoming a judge made it uh, more desirable because especially in civil, when I had business disputes, I could draw on that experience. Uh, The other thing is this in terms of becoming a judge, which I never really thought about doing when I was in law school or when I was beginning to practice, this was just never on my mind. But then I began to realize I was always balancing two different points of view. Stan's point of view, conservative, Republican, hardcore business. My father, uh, liberal Democrat, bon vivant, uh, lots of women in his life, regardless of marriage or not. Uh, And I kind of balanced those off and tried to see two points of view. And suddenly I realized that's what a judge does. We try to balance the points of view, see it from each side and try to make a decision. You know, the just decision following the law, of course. Do you think that there's a way to take some positivity out of a divorce uh, with your parents and say, hey, because of this, your outlook on life got a whole different dimension and depth that it never would have uh, in the business world? or the Republican ideal world uh, and the way that Stan ran his life 
compared to what your father did, did it make you more of a complete person of being able to see all these different views that you eventually placed in uh, the way you handled legal cases? I'll, uh, I'll say yes to that. Sure, because you're you're literally seeing two different worlds. And if you're the more worlds you're exposed to, I think the broader person you become and the more you're able to get along or at least perceive differences among people. Yeah. But it's unpleasant. It's difficult. I mean, I must tell you, you know, I still have my old report cards from the third and fourth grade and the third grade parents were together. They were happy. I did very well. Fourth grade, they're divorced. Uh, My my marks in deportment were low. Interesting. Across the board, they were low. Did you feel when you made your career choice that you had the support uh, from both sides? Well, my father was alive. You know, he he died before I left college. Okay. But he he was very happy when I kept talking about law school. He thought that was a good move for me. And Stan was exceptionally happy when I went to law school. And he wanted me to you know, be a practicing lawyer and represent the family business. In fact, while he was proud when I became a judge, there was a side of him that really wanted me to keep on practicing and represent the family business. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wasn't about to do. Right, right. We only have like a minute left to go. Uh, okay. What, what do you want people to to receive out of this besides just some good stories, which is a wonderful read. Uh, it's very interesting. You wanted to keep turning the page. You wrote it wonderfully, but what are you hoping and what would you say to the people that are listening? Hey, pick up this book and I hope you get this out. Of it. Well, I hope you, I hope you're entertained. Uh, and you know, I hope you enjoy the stories and maybe a, a look at, uh, Hollywood back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, from someone really not in the, not an insider so much as someone just over the fringe, if you will, uh, looking at it, you know, not outside the glass window, but just inside. And then looking at the business world of Southern California, again, you know, just inside from a kid's point of view. And if uh, a person is going through a divorce, Maybe this will help them understand how to deal with children. Yeah. Is California the place to be? Back then it was. I mean, California then was the golden state. And Kevin yes. Starr, who was our chief librarian at the time, has written wonderful histories of California. And his uh, book for these years is called Golden Dreams, California in an Age of Abundance. California was fabulous at this time. And many, many books have been written about it. Now, struggling like the rest of the country. Yeah. The world has intruded and changed everything. Yeah, I'm sure Hollywood now, uh, Tony, isn't anything like it used to be. I'm sure it's not. I'm not that exposed to it. I have had entertainment figures in my courtroom. Um, I'm not saying that gives me a good look at what's going on now, but uh, you know, I'm looking at, they're not exactly happy, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be the golden age anymore. No. But for the ones who are succeeding and the ones who are making good movies and good music, uh, they're as happy as they can be and they're as prosperous as they can be. And they get $20 million a picture plus residuals as opposed to a few thousand dollars without residuals, which was the case 
in the late 50s, early 60s. Right, right. Tell you what, Tony, thank you so much for being with us. And I'd hold up the book one more time. I suggest and recommend this book highly every other weekend, Coming of Age with Two Different Dads by Anthony Moore. And you could be reading this book tonight right off Amazon by just clicking the Kindle edition. And it'll be right there. You got Kindle or Barnes and Noble. It's available all sorts of places. Great. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on your show. Well, it's an honor. And your publisher was great to work with. I appreciate them getting in contact with me. And uh, Anthony, if you ever want to come back on the program, I'd love to dig a little deeper with you. It'd be awesome. I may take you up on that offer. You never know. I will do that. I, absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. God great. You. Thank you. Good night. Thank now. you. Tell your wife, thank you for sharing you with us tonight. I will tell her that. And the dog has been very well behaved. Yes. I didn't even know you had a dog at your feet. So that's one. Ben has not barked once. This is good. <laughs> thank you, Tony. Okay. Bye-bye like now. We, like we do each and every weekend, I always like to uh, end the program. Time the way we started. And no matter what you're dealing with right now, no matter what has been dealt with you in your hand of life, I want to let you know, and please don't forget this. There's always hope. There's always hope. Don't give up on that. Uh, join us right here next week uh, for another edition of Breaking the Silence live from the most awesome city in the world, Houston, Texas. Have an awesome week. Safe Halloween. And as the weather starts changing, and don't forget next week, you're going to be fall, setting your clocks back an hour because we're going back to that time of where you gain an hour of sleep, but it may not be that great uh, coming in the evening. But God bless you. Be with us next week for another edition of Breaking the Silence. Good night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.